0: Listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen.
1: Hey Sarah. Hi Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured episode 177. In this episode, we are talking to Will Strong, a special edition from the UK. We're going to talk about the politics of work time, free time, and reclaiming the work week. But first, the news. Chicago has once again become a hub of education labor activism, this time becoming the latest flashpoint in the national fight to unionize graduate student workers. The graduate workers at the University of Chicago have launched a campus-wide work stoppage. It's a three-day work action that is basically a strike in all but name. It's aimed at pressuring the administration to voluntarily recognize their union, Graduate Workers United. The action, which was met with widespread support from students, other faculty, and community members, followed a big strike by graduate workers at the University of Chicago, Illinois. Earlier this year, Belabored reported on groundbreaking teacher strikes at local charter schools as well. And of course, the backdrop to all these actions is a nationwide wave of strikes and protests by education workers, along with a major legal impasse at the National Labor Relations Board regarding academia and the employment of graduate students, because the Trump administration administration might soon overturn the Obama-era precedent of recognizing graduate workers' collective bargaining rights. The University of Chicago graduate workers hope voluntary recognition from the administration can help them establish their union, regardless of what the board rules. I spoke with Romance Languages doctoral student Laura Culinary on the first day of the work action about why grad workers are taking action now.
2: So at this point, it's been, it's been way too long. They had the opportunity to, to recognize us and we've had other actions before. We had a walkout. We've had a series of teach-ins or work-ins. We've had a series of, of, of other actions of this type. And this is by far our, our largest one to date. We are, are out here by the hundreds at this point, front of, uh, building picketing, um, asking our, our, our students not to go to class. A lot of students are not going to class and, um, it's been pretty great that a lot of faculty have chosen to, to do work off of campus if they have to uh, or to also to not hold their classes if they're able to do their contract in solidarity with us. So it's been really great seeing that level of solidarity. But yeah, in general, so I'm, I teach Spanish 102. I am not teaching today. I cancelled my class. I'm not doing any, any work today. It includes holding office hours, answering emails, uh, doing any grading. And, and it's actually kind of a weird feeling because I feel like I haven't actually had a full day in which I haven't done any work, uh, in months probably. So it's, it's a really like strange experience, but also, uh, has been really, really informative and exciting.
1: How are the operations of the university being affected? Because I know that that was a concern among some students.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So as far as I, get, I can tell, um, so our adjunct professors, some of them have in, as part of their con, con uh, track that they can't cancel class as a work, uh, as a solidarity action. So they have to be hosting their classes. But for instance, I have a, a colleague who is an adjunct and had to uh, hold his class and only has three students who, who showed up uh, because students are really choosing not to cross those ticket lines. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have got a lot of photos of very empty buildings. Um, and so my impression so far and And again, I'm not walking through the buildings because they're under picket. So I'm I'm hearing reports from those who have to be in there that campus operations are really, really slowed down and a huge number of of classes are are canceled here. As far as I know, I think that like the graduate workers are very much participating in this action, which is really, really exciting. And I know that a lot of other people, for instance, um, some administrative staff, Uh, in my department are are working from home in order to not cross ticket lines or or canceling things that are not necessary to hold. So that's been really, uh, really great. Mm
1: -hmm. You did vote in a standard union election process to have a union, but um, because of the sort of maneuvers at the top of the NLRB, the legal process was kind of upended. Um.
2: Right. Yeah, absolutely. So we held that vote in October. This was sort of the culmination of, I think, at at this point, a decade of of union organizing on campus for UChicago. And so in 2016... The National Labor Relations Board ruled that yes, graduate workers at private universities could unionize. That was in a decision with Columbia specifically, um, and that reversed the previous administ- uh, administration's um, ruling that had had been on, in the opposite direction. And that was under Bush. Obama appointees were much more uh, open to, to union um, unionizing, and now we're back under Trump. You know, they've got a new appointees, and they are frankly, you know, anti-union. And then we know they're not going to be friendly. So we held our vote anyway. We wanted to go through with the legal process, and uh, we we realized that at this point we can't trust the NLRB to be protecting the rights of workers. And so instead, we're asking the university to voluntarily recognize us. Uh, Many other universities have done that so far, and notably Columbia was also recognized after a series of work actions and work stoppages as well. Brown, which was actually the university that was in that original 2004 case that ruled against uh, grad grad workers at private universities being able to unionize, they have now voluntarily recognized their graduate worker union. Um, so this is happening really in a lot of other places. And, and at this stage, Chicago, the administration has the power to do that. Um, they're trying to use the NLRB as sort of like a shield for their own anti-worker agenda to disguise it and say oh it's out of our hands but in reality the, the powers in their hands. We're not, you know, asking the government to recognize us, we're asking you Chicago to recognize us. So I think that's the, the general rundown. And and interestingly our President Zimmer was actually the person who who pushed that original Brown case to rule against the graduate workers. Um, and now he's just, you know, he's trying to do the same exact thing and stonewall the union here. So he uh ultimately he lost the last time and, and he thinks he'll he lose this time.
1: So how confident are you that voluntary recognition will happen on this campus? Because I know that it was a you know, fairly long struggle. I mean, NYU is <laughs> maybe the first to sort of set a precedent here. But what is your
2: outlook? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's unfortunate that we're being we're being faced with this so, so long right now. But I think it's obvious sort from of our numbers today and the amount of solidarity we've seen with the actions from across campus that the, the community and the campus is with us. We have a local aldermen and, and the mayor who have expressed support for the union in the past so there's a lot of people telling this administration both from within and without uh that this is the right thing to do for this campus and this community. Uh so I feel I feel pretty optimistic that this will be made clear. It <laughs> You can't say anything for sure. It's absolutely true that this has been and probably will continue to be an uphill battle, especially because this is just the first step. Um, all we're asking for at this point is recognition. That's our only demand for for this current um, work action. And And then there will be another step, and the other step will be, you know, not just be recognized, but to actually go to the bargaining table and come together with a contract that's that's good for us. So no matter what happens, you know, even if they recognize us right now at this very minute, it's going to continue to be uh, a battle that requires a lot of organizing and a lot of fighting. Uh, I don't think anyone's kidding themselves about uh, how much we have to really be strong and uh, articulate and fighting hard, right, Mm -hmm. with this administration. Uh, I don't think that's that anyone's kidding themselves about that, but I think that we're going forward with an optimistic viewpoint that for me is really coming out of being like a rank and file member and being surrounded by so much energy on this campus and so many people who are really ready to to be changing this campus climate.
1: I know that you said that just getting union recognition is the first step, but can you describe your working conditions a little bit and perhaps shed some light on the types of conditions that that drove you to this point where you felt that unionization was ultimately uh, a necessary and, and fair thing for you to demand?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, for me, a major thing, first of all, is I'm, I teach Spanish 102. Uh, I teach the exact same course that an adjunct teaches. So, to me, it's very clear that I am a worker. Uh, that I'm doing the same kind of work that other workers are on this campus. And actually our adjuncts unionized and also had had a very difficult um, battle with the administration to get a good contract just just recently. And so for me, I'm I'm looking at who I am in this campus community and saying, well, clearly I'm a worker. I do the exact same thing as an adjunct does. not And I know they definitely are not well treated and haven't been until more recently when they ha- got huge concessions out of their contracts through unionizing, right? And so uh, that's that's part of it, is being part of this community and seeing what's best for all of the workers, you know, not just graduate graduate workers, but also the adjuncts, the other colleagues that we work with on, on a day-to-day basis. So the other thing is that our conditions vary wildly between departments, between divisions. So, for instance, I have a, a, a teaching load that it depends on points and it depends on if you're an assistant or, or a direct instructor. And I have an office and I have fairly okay wages, but those wages don't always get delivered to me on time. Uh, those aren't always communicated to me effectively how much that's supposed to be, especially since um, I, I take on other positions, such as I'm a workshop coordinator here, um, and the payment that I receive for that workshop, it's never made clear to me when that's supposed to be showing up. It's like always very like vague to say, Oh, we need to put through the paperwork here and then it'll come probably around then and it doesn't come till, you know, a month later. Uh which to me is very unacceptable to not know when you're supposed to be getting paid or how much you're supposed to be getting paid or another friend who got overpaid and now they're trying to take away the wages even though he was trying to express what the issue was. Um so really there's a huge problem with you know, not just amounts of pay, but but pay, uh, payment being treated like this is our livelihood across campus, instead of like we have this bizarre idea that none of us have to pay rent or something.
1: This thing has been dragging on for a year and a half for you. What happens when, uh, you know, a movement for something like a graduate workers union does have to deal with, you know, the turnover of students,
2: right? you're absolutely right that our, our turnover as people who are only on this campus for a definitive amount of time can be a challenge um, for for developing organizers and and keeping momentum going. Uh, but I'm actually really um, actually struck by the power of this struggle to move beyond that because we have I mean we have both PhD people who are in PhD programs and in masters programs right so a masters is one or two years usually versus the PhD can be you know. Minimum five, really, but six, seven, eight, nine years, even, depending on what your workload is again and and what your program is, et cetera. Um, and uh, I was struck this morning because I was actually speaking to someone who had like an old school looking CSU shirt, and he said, yes, I designed this you know years and years ago, like at least like five years ago when they were first starting uh organizing and um and this was like our original T-shirt design. Um, so that was really um something I was struck by because he's here, right? He came back to support us uh during this action, and I think that we've we've seen that from people who are all over the place, whether they've got a tenure track job somewhere, whether they're still in Chicago doing some sort of other work, whether they're an adjunct on this campus. I think that people are still like impressed by the power of this movement and feel attached to it mm-hmm. um but yeah and and that's the other thing is that it makes it necessary to be thinking not just about like, oh, I I want these concessions for my my job, right? But it's really about everybody coming after us, right? So I might have been able to do this program because of my cost of living and my living situation, but somebody else with the exact same conditions cannot come in after me necessarily. And, you know, if they had a family to take care of if they had more student debt they might not be able to take the exact same pay that i did uh, and so really i'm not just you know fighting for me to be able to get paid on time and live where i want where i work which i think is is a reasonable thing to fight for but also for the people who come after me who who deserve to also be able to to live even if they have um, more mitigating circumstances, because this is in in some ways about, um, you know, not just doing the work, but also opening this as a possibility for extremely smart, hardworking people uh, who have a lot to contribute to our campus, to our community, and to the university system as a whole, to academia as an institution, but might not be able to do that because they can't afford to be a grad student for five, six, seven years uh, while they get their PhD, right?
1: That was Laura Collinary on the first day of the work action at the University of Chicago.
0: Things never seem to calm down in West Virginia, where the legislature is attempting yet another retaliatory education bill to get back at the teachers who struck, won, and kicked off a wave of red state uprisings last year. I spoke with one of those teachers about what's been happening over the last week and what they're planning next.
3: My name's Brendan knuckian Beach. I'm a teacher at Weir High School, and I'm a member of the steering committee for the West Virginia United Caucus.
0: So, this has been a busy week or so for you in West Virginia. Tell us, first of all, what the legislature is trying to do to education right now.
3: Right now, the legislature is trying to push through essentially what they tried to push through in February, albeit more retaliatory in measure. Mm -hmm. So... In February, they tried to pass Senate Bill 451, their education omnibus bill, which after a few amendments would have allowed limited charter school development in West Virginia, Mm -hmm. um, limited educational savings accounts, which are essentially vouchers for parents to use, and it would provide a raise for um, school, school employees. Now, however, the way the bill is written would allow for unlimited charters in the state the way the bill is written it appears that the level of money that could come in to help promote charters and their development would be far greater than it was under senate bill 451 in february the educational savings account bill was passed in the senate in a separate bill and uh one of the senators senator trump actually added an amendment to this bill so that it would increase the penalties for teachers who go on strike. It would eliminate the possibility of county superintendents closing schools in the event of a work stoppage. Mm -hmm. So this bill in its newest form is essentially the February bill on steroids.
0: And this weekend they tried to pass this in a special session, correct?
3: Correct. Senate reconvened on Saturday, June 1st, and we held a massive rally. There were several hundred teachers, school service personnel, mine workers, and all types of public employees and allies who came to Charleston and rallied against this bill. We had people who were up in the galleries, all decked out in their red, watching the senators, and we had hundreds of people at the Senate chambers chanting for hours And we were getting reports from people inside that they could hear us from Mm -hmm. uh, inside when we were chanting our loudest. And it was starting to throw some of them off their game. Mm -hmm. So we could tell that this rally was having the desired effect we wanted. We wanted them to remember that regardless of summer or not, we were still here.
0: Right, right. And so what ended up happening in the legislative session and what's sort of the next steps on this?
3: So essentially... They passed uh, this new bill, Senate Bill 1039, I believe, is the number. And we're waiting for the House to reconvene on Monday, June 17th. So in between now and June 17th, we're trying to prepare for the House to come back to session and either vote for the bill as it is, amend it, or pass it through. And we know that they're on a pretty certain timetable because this bill has to be passed and signed into law before July 1st, the uh, start of the new fiscal year. Mm -hmm. And the governor has 10 days to veto a bill, and we are getting reports that he doesn't like it as it is, that Mm -hmm. Mitch Carmichael, the Senate president, was actually doing things with this bill that he didn't like. So timetable to get this turned around voted on and uh, sent to the governor's desk is very quick Mm -hmm. so we're trying to prepare for targeting house members who we know could support us we want to try to remind them that they supported us last time we want to remind them that they should support us this time so we're trying to target them in their districts we're preparing for a june 17th rally. At the mm-hmm. Capitol, and the caucus is also sponsoring an event similar to Mother Jones's Children's March, June 20th, which is uh, West Virginia Statehood Day. We're holding a June 20th um, Mother Jones Children's March to Charleston. We're going to have uh, children there. We're going to bring in all different unions and allies coming together in Charleston to march around the Capitol, hold speeches, have children write out their wish list for what they want to see happen in, uh, West Virginia. Mm-hmm. And so this will be a way, regardless of where the bill goes, to remind our people that we hold the power, that this is nothing new. This is just another form of class warfare in the 21st century.
2: Yeah, so Betsy
0: DeVos kind of showed her hand on this, didn't she, with her tweets about a West Virginian charter school?
3: Yeah, that was really dumb of her. <laughs> um... Yeah. uh, I spoke with someone on my way into the legislature on uh, Saturday for a big rally, and we were talking about just the sheer goal of her to go ahead and tweet that. I mean, I think she truly thinks that she was helping the situation, (laughs) but in reality, it actually galvanized more people. It made them angrier, and it uh, confirmed a lot of fears that, this bill isn't designed to help the children of West Virginia. It's designed to essentially do what Betsy DeVos did in Michigan, what she's trying to do at the Department of Education. She's trying to do it here in West Virginia. Yeah. And it confirmed a lot of our suspicions. So it, it made people angry. It made them suspicious of this. And to be honest, it was probably the best thing that could have happened to us. I mean, uh, the boss's BS is always the best organizing tool, and mm-hmm. <laughs> there was a lot of BS
1: there. Yeah.
0: That was Brendan Muckian-Bates of the West Virginia United Caucus of Teachers.
1: There's no shortage of populist strongman leaders around the world who are cozying up to our president, but there's a particularly uncanny link between the Donald and his Filipino counterpart, Rodrigo Duterte brash, vulgar, and spectacularly egotistical, Duterte, a very popular and popularly elected leader, shares Trump's lust for power and is even more willing to use violence to get his way. Duterte's war on drugs has led to the extrajudicial killing of several thousand people so far, as well as a wave of mass incarceration, and he's cracked down massively on journalists, targeting many of those who fail to sing his praises as enemies of the state. And yet he remains exceedingly popular, and in the latest round of national elections, he secured a friendly majority in the legislature. I spoke with Marie Monteban, president of the Filipino-American Press Club of New York, about the kinds of pressures that journalists are facing under Duterte, whether it comes from civilians or from government actors. She says the attacks on journalists are making the job increasingly dangerous, and they are constantly bombarded, not only with retaliation from government, including legal harassment and jail, but also Duterte's troll army, which wages vicious online attacks on journalists that sometimes spill into the real world. And sorry about the dodgy line.
4: I've been in constant communication with my friends in the press in the Philippines. And I, I asked them, is it more scary now compared to the time of President Marcos?" And I um, would uh, remember somebody who won the killings uh, last year in 2017. He was part of the team that wrote about the slaughtering us which came out in the New York Times. And he said that right now, he as a media practitioner finds it more scary because the platform we have, the digital platform we have, where you can post your stories, you indeed, you may immediately have an access to people reading you, but the style right now of the powers that be, or President, the for that matter, he has an army of trolls that will um, bully you and your writing.
1: And that was Marie Montibon, president of the Filipino American Press Club of New York.
0: Work, we do a lot of it, and we're so used to the idea that we're going to spend most of our lives at work that the idea of working less can seem shocking and strange. But for many years of the labor movement, most of its organizing went into demanding time away from work. As the eight-hour day movement which came, you know, after the 10 hour day movement, put it eight hours for work, eight hours for sleep, eight hours for what we will. They won that fight mostly. And during the New Deal and World War Two, the 40 hour work week was institutionalized. Some within the labor movement never stopped fighting for less work, though the demand was mostly dropped by the mainstream labor organizing. But now, with the ever-present questions of unemployment, automation, and climate catastrophe in the air, more and more people are calling for labor to pick up the demand for shorter hours without, of course, a reduction in pay and keep it going. Today we're talking to Will Strong of Autonomy, a UK-based independent think tank that is considering seriously the questions of how a shorter work week might well work, and getting those ideas picked up by no less than Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell of the Labour Party. A recent report from Autonomy on how less work could help solve the climate crisis even got picked up by a bunch of the UK's major tabloids. This is the first of a few conversations I'll be having in the UK as I'm spending the summer here working on my book and learning from folks who are organising in new and exciting ways over here. Tell us about Autonomy. How did you... What is it? What do you do? When did you get started? What made you get started?
5: We started about 18 months ago in the summer of... 2017 and effectively we were a bunch of uh, academics researchers economists who saw there was a need for kind of good research around the future of work and research that can inform a kind of growing consensus that work needs to change basically so we we were reading a lot yeah a a diverse range of texts we were reading um kathy weeks's book we were reading um more popular texts like inventing the future which is quite an important book for the uk at uh, the time, but also the reports coming out from Oxford University around the future of automation, different forms of technology coming out. So, if you look at the landscape of think tanks, policy uh, institutions, uh, research organisations, yeah. over the last ten, fifteen, twenty years, they've even those that call themselves progressive have been fairly slow in talking about uh, some of the issues that w- that we wanted to platform so thinking about working time thinking about uh, using technology for the benefit of, of work it's not just mm-hmm. as something which improves productivity per se so we, we were looking at this kind of situation we thought well there really is an urgent need to kind of develop something which is which is has has the capacity to change the debate around work yeah. there are a lot of dogmas around work we thought actually needed challenging mm-hmm. particularly some of us who started it have been you know we've all worked in kind of precarious jobs or, or just jobs which you know we we, we, we thought were kind of horrible if we're we're honest so i think we we experience the the labor market as well as realizing that there needs to be more thinking on this we so we set this we set this thing up called autonomy which um is really it's 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 a a think tank but kind of a new type type of think tank which is very light on its feet very um it can it can we can push radical policies but also provide the kind of research to back it up really and to answer your question about who we are there's a small core group doing a lot of the legwork a lot of the kind of um whether it's the admin work or the research, but then also a, a wide network of, of academics who believe the project's a good one and want to plug in different ways.
0: Yeah. So obviously, we're going to talk about your report on the four-day work week. So early in the report, you all write. This report aims to demonstrate that the time we spend in work is neither natural nor inevitable. Instead, the amount of time we spend in work is a political question. One of the central aims of this report is to establish time itself as a site of political contestation in the same vein as housing, healthcare, income, and national defense. Mm-hmm. And so one of the reasons that I wanted to talk about this is that this concept, particularly in the U.S., seems to have been kind of forgotten the mm-hmm. amount of time we spend at work has really been naturalized, and even when you see people pushing back on things like precarious work, it's with this idea that like, we've just got to get back to a sort of nine-to-five, five-day-a-week, mm-hmm. you know, 40-hour work week.
4: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So
0: I want to you know, get you started by talking about this work you're doing around just repoliticizing the idea of working time.
5: Yeah, I mean, I think it's particularly interesting in the U.S. context because this is an example I always talk about: is that actually, you know, it was it was an American worker unions who really won the weekend before many other people did. I mean, it was Australian stonemasons who who won the eight-hour day, but it was the weekend really became uh, was really a victory for American workers. Yeah. Um, and actually you know we talk about it not being working time not being you know inevitable or anything but actually the weekend was really only normalized after the war yeah. you know like we forget that it's like there's living memory of there not being a weekend right. um, and so it is also kind of strange that, that memory has been to some extent deleted right. and that we do think that the nine to five five day a week is, is kind of natural yeah. so as you say immediately we wanted to kind of put that out there at the start of the report to say well actually let's think about you know what's the correct amount of time to work or right. what's what's natural well actually you know the limits of what's natural art is a political question really right. um, and I think you know there's 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 a reason for that um there's there's a long standing tendency of of market economies is really to kind of make the most out of the working time of workers right. so like you know if you're in a firm there's there's a huge incentive for you to basically make sure that there's not only does is work more intensive to, to make more stuff so you, can, you can, can kind of make a profit but also to extend the amount of time you have people working right that's why you see now, you know, even now you see firms, particularly, you know, Jack Ma, the the, the, billi- the Chinese billionaire talking about, oh, we need a 996 routine, we need to put, we need to start, almost get rid of the weekend, we yeah. need to work more, and so that tendency is always there right. it was American workers, workers who actually pushed back on that and created the weekend, so I think so and 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 since then the weekends become normalised. It's, it's that's a really important yeah. thing to do. But the report is is really saying why do we stop there? If we all recognise the weekend's important, time to recuperate, time to relax, and if there's no natural limit to why to 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 working less, then um, then why don't we?
0: Yeah, I think it's an interesting moment right now, right? Because both in the US and the UK we're sort of reclaiming the these social democratic ideas and there's you know there's a tendency in some circles to just be like we just have to go back to this period in time and I think it's important right now to for especially again for workers for unions for people who are fighting these struggles in the workplace to think about whether we can go back or whether we want to
5: yeah and no, I think it's an important point which has which perhaps hasn't been made enough in the last few years but it has been made a number of times and I think it's really relevant to say that yeah, what does going back mean? I yeah. mean, if we're going to go back, there's a number of things we probably want to change, right? Like yes. the, the, the kind of post war through to the early 1980s, kind of golden period, as they say. Yeah. It's, it's a world, fine, characterized by a certain amount of security and rising wages, but also a, world, a very sexist world. The world of the, kind of the male breadwinner, you know, uh, women stay at home to make the household, men go out and work. It's also an incredibly racist world. In a lot of the the Fordist, the kind of prosperity in the global north, was actually built off the of those in the global south in, in a way and so development and in, in that kind of improvement wasn't necessarily the improvement of, for everyone so i think should be wary about going back and i think on a more mundane level literally um the kind of work that was being done was often really boring and monotonous so like factory work wasn't yeah. exactly the kind of thing we want to go back to yeah. there's a reason why yeah just to bring it up again there's a reason why workers campaigned for uh, uh, five day weeks because they recognised that work wasn't freedom so i think that's an important point to make that the nostalgia for a pre pre neoliberal pre-Reagan, pre-Thatcher world needs some caveats at at least. Yeah,
0: Um, Yeah, it's interesting because the news today here, or one of the things in the news in between the D-Day stuff, is um, another plant closing, right? mm, the, mm. The Ford plant. And, you know, not that long ago I was in Ohio reporting in the Lordstown plant closing. And, like, I feel like going into these places, you know, there's a lot of the coverage of it ends up being very much like, oh, these workers are just so sad that they don't get to work in this factory anymore. Or like the coal miners, you know, we've had a million stories about how coal country is Trump country and blah, blah, blah. And like the miners are real sad that they don't get to go down a miserable pit in the earth and get black <laughs> lung anymore. And, you know, I always think it's important to say, is that really the case? But you mm-hmm. will get even from sort of labor unions. People mm-hmm. saying, "Well, people want to work. People are fulfilled through work. Mm-hmm. People find mm-hmm. their purpose mm-hmm. in work." You know, it can be difficult to say to people, "Like, actually, we all should just work less," mm-hmm. when they're literally losing jobs. Yeah, yeah. no,
5: I think there's, there, there, there's a few things here, isn't there? Because there's yeah. you ha- you a kind of you have to kind of juggle, you know, short term demands and struggles and what needs to be done in the short term with ultimately what's the, what's the vision of the economy going forward, and the two aren't separated. Right. I guess you could frame it this way: Isn't it a bad situation when, as soon as a pl- one plant closes, it, it can ruin the lives of thousands of people? And um, why is that? Well, it's because their livelihoods dependent on a single activity they can do, and it can be closed at the whim of, of an employer or the the fortunes of the of the of the market, which forces it quote unquote big old air quotes around big old air quotes yeah you know the that's an unfortunate situation, you know. We, I, I it's a basic analysis of what, what it is to be in a market economy. That if you're dependent on the market, I like this 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 distinction that Ellen makes and Wood makes, where you know, non-market economies, the market seems to be an opportunity to sell your wares and buy goods, but yeah. in a market economy, the market's an imperative. And as soon as, and that includes the labor market. Right. So when you, when you're in a labor market, if your access to the market is, if you can't sell your your labor, if you can't work, then ultimately you're put to destitution. And I think that's not a vision that we want to sediment going forward, that's something we need to start to untangle. Now that doesn't mean we shouldn't struggle for jobs because that's just like literally the bread and butter of what we need, literally the bread, of getting the bread and butter to live. When we talk about employment and the world of work and making work better, we need to make out of work life better. So, you know, interestingly talking about unions again, before social security was here in the UK, it was unions who had this kind of this system of security where if one of their union members was out of work, yeah. they would come in, sign in into an office, but get an income because the union knew they could get a job somewhere else at some point. Yeah. So it's kind of like they provided social security before the welfare state did. Now, that was a recognition on the part of unions that sometimes the market isn't favourable yeah. or whatever, that you know within a capitalist society, stuff does go bad, but we need a safety net. That kind of recognition, I think, needs to come back, really, rather than just kind of treating social security separate from labor.
0: So when we're talking about these sort of questions of, of productivity, the graph that is like stuck in my head, right, is like the wage gains and productivity mm. graph that is just like totally separated. I'm making gestures that nobody can hear from my podcast. <laughs> um, you know, the, the divergent graph. But yeah, mm-hmm. so one of the points that you make in this report, right, mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. that productivity is not actually improved by working people to death. Mm-hmm. And that Employers can basically afford to cut back on working time without actually paying people less.
5: Yes, so the, the productivity question is very interesting for a number of reasons, and it does actually speak to a kind of strategy I think you know, our economy should be should be adopting, and our our policymakers and our governments should be adopting, which is basically a number of things. On the one hand, some of the work that we do at Autonomy is kind of consultancy work for companies who want to move to a four-day week without loss in pay. So we, you know, part of our service to say, okay, you don't have to reduce your staff's salaries their wages and but you can also move to a four-day week and there's a number of benefits in this including that productivity tends to not drop and that's it depends on the industry but ultimately if you're doing office work in particular and that's a whole range of sectors then you know that labor is essentially what's called elastic which means that there are a number of reasons why that kind of work could be done in in shorter hours without necessarily increasing the intensity but you have staff commitment because they're going to get a day off so one point here i want to make is that in loads of different companies and industries, a 40 day week is very possible now, no. as is. Another point to make is that the jaws of doom, productivity and wages <laughs> yeah, yeah. have split, um, which basically means that, for example, you can do some calculations. I believe Juliet Shaw's done this in her Overworked American. that if you calculate if workers took compensation in terms of time rather than wages during, during the last 40 years, American workers could be on something like a 25-hour or 20-hour week even. So there is an argument to be made that actually we should already be here. Yeah. And that demand should be made anyway. And I think the third point is about transition and about how we get there in in, in like a medium longer term view. And I think this is where the disc- discussion about automation and technology comes in because mm-hmm. we hear a lot about the potential of this technology, um, potential for joblessness or you know or yeah. increased productivity. But actually, it's often framed as a, as a kind of inevitable force. But let's tie those two conversations together so that you have. A conversation about shorter working hours as well as labour-saving technology. I think Raymond Williams made a good point. I think he says the humane choice is obvious enough. Anyone who's done boring, monotonous, or hard or dangerous work knows that the potential for machines and robots to do that work yeah. for you is obviously has is utopian potential. Yeah. So the question really is, how do we make this technology work in order to achieve those ends? Yeah. So there's a, there's a kind of short, medium, and long-term vision for this. In the short term companies can do it now um, over five years i think you know there should be policy about this legislation to kind of incentivize and 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 move companies to do this across the economy but then long term and I, by long term i mean it really only like not that long yeah. between 10 20 30 years a more automated economy wherein people have more time for themselves is 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 viable so i think the productivity question is is central to it but actually it's it's definitely not an obstacle
0: one of the things in, in um, some of the research that's been done on shorter working weeks was that, um, I think in New Zealand, you know, some workers did feel, okay, we're, we're cutting back, but then we do have to be more productive in the time that we have, and that can be a good thing, but it can also be just another way of sort of driving people to work harder. Yeah, I guess I'm wondering if there if you thought that much about, like, what kind of safeguards can be put in place on that front so that, like, we are not, you know just in the speed-up mm. all the time, right? I mean, mm. I'm thinking about the Lordstown workers who are, like, the assembly line sped up to 100 cars per minute, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And it's just, like, literally, you have, like, less than a second to do every
5: Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, so the thing is, that's obviously really important. I think there's... There more thought needs to be done on this. In the report, we advocate... And this sounds like a, like a small tweak, but I think it, it could be potentially radical, is to have occupational health workers. So in the UK, I don't know what the equivalent is in the US, but we have... Mm-hmm occupational health and occupational therapists within the workplace there are certain metrics by which you know workplaces can be uh, judged as healthy and safe and whatever and i think having um burnout and staff well-being being something which can be covered in a kind of non-intrusive non-kind of clipboardy kind of way in which there's a way of pushing back against managers pushing too hard is a a small team which could have Basically, provide provide a kind of um, don't want to say the word disciplinary, but a kind of reverse disciplinary yeah. effect upon managers. Who manage know they can't push their workers too hard, otherwise there could be certain reports. Right. Now that can be enforced at like a national level, which means that you you wouldn't just have nice companies doing it and, and like
4: yeah. sports
5: director of Amazon not doing it. That's one thing. Another, another question is really, I mean, to some extent it might have to have, have to happen industry or on a firm level basis yeah. to think about how to. Make sure work intensity is, is is not kind of ramped up, and I mean, I think this is this is why longer term there needs to be a kind of uh, multi-pronged approach, including the management of new labour-saving tech and things like that. Because mm. if you know, a lot of people say, well, "Does that mean you know, four day a four-day week? Does that mean you have to work ten hours in four days?" In, in right. four days, and it's like, "Well, no, that's not that's not it at all. It's really about cutting the working hours." Yeah. But what the, I, I guess there's no one quick fix, as right. it were. It has to be yeah. something which is managed over time. Right. I mean. To some extent the history the history of the last hundred and fifty years has been the constant struggle of how do you stop the intent, work intensification yeah. and I guess on the main on the main hasn't been that successful apart from yeah. direct action where it yeah. might be like okay we're we're not going to take this anymore work is organized yeah. so, the, so I think it's it, it's an ongoing question for for people who want who want to think about the workplace and the content of work and whatever but I think I think ultimately um a good place a good place to start with all these things is to think well if work is intensifying and it's non, it's non, it's very hierarchical, non-democratic, etc., then spending less time at work is, is, is also it's got to be part of that strategy because right. e- even if you're not, even if things aren't intense at work, there's there's loads of reasons why work isn't freedom.
0: And I think one of the I mean, and you make this point in the report, right? That just shortening the working week is not going to be the solution. That mm. this is going to have to come among other things alongside stronger protections for unions, perhaps. Mm-hmm. And thinking about this and thinking about coming back to the robots question, because um, you know we love the robots question around here, the demands on these things, obviously for this to be implemented in the first place, we're going to have to see workers making the demands around it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the one place I've, I think I've seen this being not in shortening the workday, but teachers sort of fighting for preparation periods, mm-hmm. free lunches, mm-hmm. you know, sometime during the day to like pause, not have 40 children staring at you and um, Mm -hmm. do something. But right. So in terms of implementing this, you make a variety of points on implementation and protections in this report. Mm -hmm. One of them being that we'll come alongside stronger unions. Mm -hmm. One of them Mm -hmm. being that this kind of has to be universal because otherwise you're going to have, some people with great four-day-a-week jobs. Mm. Or you get what we have now, which is people cobbling together, you know, three or four part-time Girls. jobs mm-hmm. or gigs or driving for Uber mm. on the side anyway.
5: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, I mean, it's good that you bring up the teacher, teaching, because teaching is, is one of the main prof- professions with burnout. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, and in fact, we've, we've put a few things through the Autonomy site, which I welcome your listeners to, to go and read. Um, we will put
0: a link at the design website.
5: Um, on, yeah, written by teachers who talk about burnout. as, yeah. as And, and interestingly, interestingly, talking about teachers who say that they would, they're con- seriously considering taking another profession, taking a pay cut as long as their workload's lower. Yeah, because of their experience of 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 burnout now that's how serious it is that you <laughs> accept less money just to have a normal job your job okay. should be a normal job yes. you know what i mean so i think so teaching is a really important one and i think there is a question around teaching in particular and other public sector jobs how do you provide a service like teaching or other other kind of public sector jobs like nursing etc when you have a four-day week now partly mm-hmm. that's to do with scheduling but also it's partly new hires yeah. you know you you just need more teachers and that's that's that that's that's one answer to this problem is that you know we want a better ratio between students and teachers. Mm-hmm. Education should be a universal right. It is a universal right. Should be treated as such. And I think so. Therefore, I don't think it would be controversial to say we need more teachers so our students get a better better education. Right. You think it's not controversial? Oh um, but... <laughs> well,
0: yes, we have a West Virginia t- teacher on this episode talking about how controversial these things are.
5: Mm-hmm. So implementation-wise, yes. I I mean, we. Also advocate sectoral collective bargaining. Right. So that's in a particularly in the UK we have dropped that a long time ago. But in Europe, that's mm-hmm. you know and actually, and actually there's good research to show. And we note it in the um, report that there's a the reason why the US has very long working weeks and very few holidays. Mm-hmm. There's good research to show that actually there's a correlation between the strength of the unions in Europe right. and the and the kind of deconstruction or destruction of of I mean, it's not all gone, but like the, yeah. the, the relatively weak union power in the US compared to Europe and over a certain amount, of, you know, w- whereas at one point that holiday and, and working time was roughly the same some, somewhere in the mid 20th century, then suddenly the, the U- Europe kind of continued its decline in the, in the length of the working week, yeah. whereas the US, if not slightly inclined, um, stayed roughly the same. So union strength is really important here, giving workers voice, letting them voice complaints about workload, about overtime, unpaid overtime, things like that. That's a good, that, as you say, that's a good place to start for this stuff. I can't remember what you your point about. Oh, it's
0: about the universal
5: versus Yes, yeah, yeah, that is really important because at the moment we do also kind of have a whole variety of dualisms or polarizations, yeah. whether it's, you know, um, some of the research I'm most interested in is job polarization, which is part of what we're calling the crisis mm-hmm. of work. So. Yeah. You know, the the last forty years has not just been some kind of some kind of recent um, phenomena, but over the last forty years has been a real divergence between low income jobs and high income jobs. And you know, some people call it low skill, high skill, but obviously lots of low income jobs is are no really high skill. Absolutely. So, <laughs> but the divergence between incomes has been has been huge, and, that, yeah. and what we've had is a hollowing out of middle income jobs. The reasons seem to be uh, there's like three three main reasons. Apparently, mm-hmm. it, it depends, uh, you know, kind of what research le- what research leans on most. But basically, you have globalization, i.e., the ability to outsource to countries with cheaper labor, particularly now with with you know kind of new new tech available. It's it's, it's okay. It's and quite easy to do admin work across the other side of the world, right. where 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 labor is cheaper and 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 worker voice is is, is weaker. Um, but also new tech basically as well. So a lot of routine admin work, which used to be white collar kind of middle level managers that just no longer those jobs aren't really being created anymore. It's not necessarily been destroyed in redundancy, it's about not being created as far. So you have what I like what I like the phrase, there's there's lovely jobs and lousy jobs. Yeah. And that's the divergence. So I think there's already divergence going on. If we are gonna have a four day week or a shorter working week, we don't want to recreate that dualism. And that how's that reflected in strategy? Well mm-hmm. As I say, some companies, particularly those with the lovely jobs, to some extent they can be incentivized to adopt this because they feel you know the staff might have more autonomy. The companies that we're working with are quite nice companies. The working culture is very nice. Fine. The other end of the, the economy, right. uh, the, the state might have to have a, a slightly more um, proactive approach, <laughs> yeah. let's say, because you know, that there there we still have many companies working a quasi-workhouse system right. where effectively you get searched as you go in. You can't really take toilet breaks. Um, we know the companies I'm talking about. And I think... Mm-hmm. Those companies you can't just say, "Oh, we're going to move to a four-day week in in five years," and they'll say they won't say, "Oh, great, we'll just we'll do it." No, there needs to be some kind of enforcement. So I think a multi-pronged or like kind of multi-sided approach is 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 the only way it's going to work. One size doesn't fit all.
0: Yeah. It's interesting because you know we have particularly in the U.S., because people don't want to pay benefits, right? You mm. don't have the same problem because everybody gets health care. You know, in the U.S., people, you know, companies like Walmart, keep everybody sort of just below the threshold where they would have to pay them benefits. Mm. Um, so you get people, you know, constantly struggling. and Then they have to try to cobble together multiple jobs. Mm-hmm. So, like, mm. just having one company with a shorter work week is kind of a problem <laughs> right now, right? You'll get workers who are just saying, can, can never get enough hours, mm-hmm. can never get enough hours. And so that kind of thing, coupled with the sort of gig economy question, right? Mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. if Uber drivers are independent contractors, big old air quotes around independent contractors too, then theoretically you're your own boss when you yeah, choose to work yeah, 80 yeah, hours yeah. a week.
5: Precisely. So those are other kind of forms of legisla- legislation that needs to be enforced. So, you know, there's a, there's a question in the UK, which I think well, I'm interested to see what people think in a way. It's, it's I think the question is to some extent unresolved. Do you ban zero hours contracts, which is kind of, you know, uh, Yeah. Policy for for many progressive governments that want to come in, including the right. Labour Party, they want to ban zero contracts. There's about about 1,200 in the UK, about 900,000 workers who work on um, no minimum hour contract. Do you ban them outright? Do you, do you amend them so they have to have a certain minimum? Like there's a question about flexibility here, which right. which you know. A nuanced approach does need to be taken, and I'm not just saying I'm not. I don't know, I'm not being paid by 0 product contract companies to say we need more nuance. Um, but I think there was an interesting question there. But you're right. Those kind of tweaks do we restore a certain kind of no, a normal style week for lots of right. workers, and therefore, and then start doing a shorter working week, right. or do we start thinking about things like you know do we increase statutory entitled um, holiday for you know part-time workers as well so that like say you even you're working you know a three-day week at one company you're you're one way of saying not being able to impose a four-day week but you effectively say no but you get this you by law you're allowed more paid holiday so that you can probably spread that across the year you know there's this try thinking about the relationship between holiday pay and the reduction of working hours sometimes one will work better than the other to kind of increase our free time in a way
0: yeah i think the questions about flexibility are actually really interesting because workers again, made some demands around having more, well, autonomy. Um, More flexibility is not necessarily, uh, particularly I'm going to ask the gender question next, so we'll just, like, ease into that one. Certain types of people who are expected to do certain amounts of labor in the home um, wanted flexible working hours. That is Mm. a demand that has been, you know, it has been made by workers. It's not like the, you know, being in a factory for 40 hours a week or whatever was, again, was, like, Mm demanded because it was awesome. And so... Again, when we're talking about sort of not being nostalgic for the Fordist compromise, but actually thinking about what organization of work
4: Mm -hmm. would
0: make more Mm -hmm. sense, Mm -hmm. I think, you know, the question of flexibility is not one that we should just write off. Like, Mm -hmm. I have talked to people who like being Uber drivers because they can turn off the app when Mm -hmm. they want to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's not a thing we should just throw away because Uber is evil. Yeah, yeah, although yeah. uber is evil.
5: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. precisely that's you you vocalized what I was trying to say, but in a much better way.
0: <laughs> oh, come on. No, um, <laughs> yeah, but it, it is a thing that I think you know. It's easy to to sort of just be like, well, the real demand is just everybody wants a forty-hour working or, yeah, yeah, yeah. or a thirty-hour working, so <laughs> like a nine-to-five <laughs> job, you know, yes, or a ten-to-six yes, 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 yes. job, or whatever it
4: is.
5: No, I think there's and, and that's that's the question for policymakers is to really how to design a system a system itself which is flexible enough so that. Um, you can maximise free time for people right. um, in whatever situation they're in whether it's okay I want to start work late to drop my kid off yeah. um, or whether it's I want to have a straight day off or whether it's um, yeah, I want to pick and choose I mean Andre Gorse used to talk about you know kind of, he's kind of the godfather of post-work right. discourse but he used to talk about having a Either a yearly or a lifetime quota of hours. Yeah. So and oh, can, I like
0: the lifetime quota. I'd probably have hit it already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
5: and if you've already hit it, you're done. Um, no, you kind of the idea being that you know I think it was something like twenty thousand hours over a, a lifetime, which works out to be ten years full time work, twenty yeah. years part time, or forty years dipping in and out and doing yeah. other bits and bobs. And so yeah, he that sounds he, great. He thought about a quota of hours being one which kind of you have to do to get get an income, social but, benefits
0: and an income. Yes, income.
5: exactly. But you. Um, You know, I'm kind of interested to see how that looks fleshed out today. I think if someone if someone's listening and they want to kind of flesh out what that might look like in the US or the UK, get in touch. Um, Contact details in the the description. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Perhaps be interested in another report. Yeah, I think it's it's a really interesting question, right? To think about, like, I mean, you and I are having this interview because we both work from home wherever home is and on that level that can be incredibly flexible but you know I was out with a friend last night and her kids were like all right you're on the phone more than we are and she's like yes but I'm on the phone because work
4: Mm, is calling mm. me
0: all day long you know Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and it's that that question of like you know when your hours are sliced down into the two minutes it takes to read and answer an email on your smartphone uh, (laughs) questions of how you bill for these hours and yes, stuff like yeah, that yeah, are yeah. really interesting, right? Definitely, um, definitely. So there are all sorts of questions. Um, but the gender question, mm-hmm. um, because I have talked to researchers, including Janet Gornick, who's done a lot of work yep. on this, about how shorter hours are the thing that is most likely to increase sort of gender equality in the workplace, which is to say that, like, if there's not this expectation that somebody in a couple, usually a man, is going to work, you know, 40 50 60 hours a week and somebody else has to stay home and take care of the kids
4: mm-hmm. who
0: that's going to be and how that's going to shape up
4: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and
0: so you get into that in this report a little bit too and also you mentioned in the report that we have to think about that unwaged work is also work time that needs to be lessened
5: yeah 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 yeah, yeah. so i think
0: favorite subject
5: yeah basically i think the question again there's nuances to this but effectively the, the idea is that reducing time on in employment can be a a really useful material kind of um, uh, accelerator of of, of of gender equality, and, that, and the reason why that is as you say, you mentioned one reason is that as soon as it's kind of loosened up how much time you spend at work and particularly reduced then the, there's an open question as to who should be looking after the kids or right. cleaning the house if you know a dual income household used yeah. to be just a one breadwinner model now you know obviously we've now been forced to all work um even in a dual income household the, the majority of housework and child uh, child rearing is, is done by women's so that that's still true so the idea is that if you start if you can reduce the amount of work for let's say both in that dual income household then there's an open question okay well look you got monday off i got friday off then you know what I mean it's an open question yeah. the reason why I say it's nuanced is because we don't think that a shorter working week a shorter working week will it inevitably lead to yeah. gender equality but I think yeah. it allows it opens the question and allows for more time autonomy right. to, to, to to have that that, that, that kind of question be, be posed but also a huge proportion of part-time work is carried out by women precisely because there's culturally prescribed right. you know reproductive roles i.e you know looking after kids in the household as soon as you make part-time the new norm i.e yeah. more and more part-time like right. you know four day week even further perhaps then yeah. suddenly those who are traditional workers and those who just do work alongside their you know household work kind of yeah. thing actually that that distinction's blurred right so suddenly you you know when you start to shift the balance between how much time you are at home or in your own free time how much time you're at work when that becomes more or less half and half or, or more equal, then suddenly, you know, there's almost no excuse for, 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 for why you're not doing stuff, stuff in the home. And again, that's with the caveat that there's a huge cultural shift needs to happen as well, as it always has done. And I think obviously we've made great gains in the last 50, 60 years. But I think a shorter working week is something, as you say, which is it can be a really powerful vector for that.
0: But So I wanted to talk about a little bit about some of the research and the experiments with shorter work weeks, both the ones that you're working on with some of these companies that you work with mm-hmm. and some of these other ones that you've cited in the report. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, some of the things that have been successful, some of the things that have been a challenge mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. to implement.
5: It's a really interesting question. And actually, since you started in this consultancy, we've learned a lot more about the shorter working week mm-hmm. than just reading about some case studies. Right. Because we've basically been going into companies and meeting staff and you know, interviewing them one on one in groups, etc And that's been a very interesting experience. And I think almost universally staff are tend to be in, in his experiments tend to be very excited about the prospect. They, you know, obviously expanded free time to feel more rested. Yeah. You know, these are these are things which perhaps you can you you'd expect. it depends on the company, but often staff feel before the trial started, they, these companies are often quite forward-thinking companies, quite nice companies to work in. So okay. they are not you know, representative of the whole economy, but they it does mean that staff there's a mixed there's, there's some mixed feelings. A staff feel great; the company's doing a four-day week, no mm-hmm. loss in pay. But on the other hand, they also feel slightly guilty sometimes that they're mm-hmm. perhaps you know they're used to doing putting in more hours. They feel this kind of like workaholic type thing because the company's so great yeah. and you're, you're kind of you know there's this interesting shift that that happens when they start realizing this might be the new norm yeah. and it becomes a new norm they're just kind of they're kind of oh this is actually this is better but I, I to some extent my expectation I thought I was expected to really what well, I like this phrase humble brag you have to,
4: <laughs> to, to, <laughs> yep. to
5: humble brag about how much you're working to try yeah. and you know so I think that's an interesting this comes down to work culture really that like mm-hmm. often and I think this is not just in, like, higher-income jobs, but, it, yeah. you know, in fact, the staff we're working with aren't particularly on high incomes. They, yes. But actually, across the board, people feel mm-hmm. this need to really commit to, to hard work, um, yeah. a hard day's work. So what's interesting is when you say to staff, well, you, you can work less, same pay, you know, we're going to find ways of making this work with your particular work process, there can be a kind of slight resistance of thinking, but, you know, I, I thought I had to work myself to sort of the boned in order to earn my weekend, mm-hmm. type thing. Yeah. I mean, other than that, I think m- most of the staff we've been talking to have been very positive about it. They've. This is interesting in itself that when when people say like, uh, without work we wouldn't know what to do, we have no purpose. You know, immediately staff are reeling off five, six, seven things they want to start yeah. doing yeah. on their Friday off. Some of the companies we're working with are doing Fridays off, not to working hours, but mm-hmm. strictly a four day week. they on a the Friday off. I'm going to travel more. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got friends. I've got family up north, for example. I'm going to yeah. go. Or I'm I'm going to treat that day as you know some of the people we work with are, are in creative work and go see more art exhibitions, give myself more stuff which you know sounds far too wholesome for, <laughs> for, for for anyone with with a kind of cynical eye. But, ulti- but th- these, are, hey. these are these are coming out, you know. So I think it's it's a slight shift in work culture, but generally it's been very very positive. There are different ways of doing it. So some companies, for example, I won't name names and this is not the companies we're working with, these companies are some of the case studies, yeah. they do have a kind of productivity um, criteria where mm-hmm. like, staff have to hit a certain, but that's measured on a, on a weekly basis. Yeah. Um, and if, if, for example, those staff don't hit that yeah. target, then they, they won't get the Friday off and so you like see that
3: just sounds
0: terrible
5: <laughs> Oof.
0: I'm just you know having been a person in the sort of content mill for a while I'm just imagining like if your article doesn't get 50,000 clicks you have to work on Friday too <laughs> I'm, I'm having I'm going to have nightmares mm.
5: so, so, so we don't advocate that model because we think you <laughs> right. lose yeah. no, you lose sure. some of the benefits of so part of the reason why you do a four day week is because you have more loyal staff you have better staff retention you have more easier to recruit staff and also generally productivity in terms of the actual work they do the quality of it is better because yeah. they feel Feel a better rest, and they feel like great. This is, you know, that actually it's nice to come to work knowing this is what's happening. If you start having criteria which can be used as a stick to beat you with, mm-hmm. suddenly you might be like, "Can we go back to five days?" and then stop looking over my shoulder, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So I think there are different ways of implementing it, and we advocate a particular way. We work with companies, and we have red lines. We say we won't do this, yes. we won't do it to cut pay, we won't do it to lay off staff, etc. Mm-hmm. But we we also don't advocate one which is so focused on productivity. That it actually does more harm than the original model you were five day, but you were, you were right. looking to do. So,
0: so before we get into the tabloid stardom, tell us a little bit about the pickup that this report has gotten, the interest in and the, the organising that's going on around it mm. in and out of the Labour Party.
5: We knew that um, John McDonnell was interested. Uh, John McDonnell, being the shadow Chancellor of the Labour Party, part of the kind of leadership of the La- Labour Party in the UK. He was interested in. He's been interested in shorter working weeks for a long time. We knew some of the his advisors. I'm going to shout out James Midway, um, who former advisor to John McDonald were interested in these ideas. And so, you know, it was great to have an endorsement from him that this is that this is a what he called a vital contribution to the debate. We had the uh, leaders of the Green Party um, in the UK, which which were kind of really endorsing it and trade unions such as the communication workers union who have actually campaigned for a, yeah. um, a shorter working week so the communication workers union yeah. in the UK um, CWU they, they represent rural male workers mm-hmm. uh, in part and the rural male workers have actually campaigned for a reduction of working hours I think it's four hours over the next four years which doesn't sound like much but that's quite significant that a fairly yeah. large union is campaigning for this and they they it's endor- probably
0: significant when you're walking around carrying a bag full of mail every day.
5: Absolutely. And that, in fact what's interesting about that is that campaign was provoked by the integration of automation tech within their workplaces. What I mean by that is sorting letters has been largely automated. Mm-hmm. So instead what they've been they kind of been transferred within the Royal Mail workplace to carrying larger parcels. Mm-hmm. The day-to-day activity yeah. is carrying heavier workloads. In, instead of just sorting mail and that means so, so the kind of the idea is basically okay you want to automate our workplace well you've got to give us something back and that's a yeah. shorter working week right. so that's very interesting and they they've endorsed they endorsed the reports we had Rutger Bregman the Davos smasher himself he endorsed the report it made a bit of a splash initially but what I find very interesting is now we see it cropping up all over the place for example, we're doing some work with the with the Valencian regional government in Spain, uh-huh. who are very interested in shorter working hours. Their vice president, Monica Ultra, she's said we're going to try and move to a, five, a four day week or a short a thirty two hour week within five years. So they yeah. kind of this has given them the kind of a bit of a spur to try and try and do that. Yeah, and so I think actually we're, we're pretty pleased at how it went. And then that was like our first major intervention. I think we think it's the largest report in existence on this ninety page report. The nearest thing was this report by the etui i think it's european trade union institute mm-hmm. um and we use some of their research in the report it's a great report in itself but but other than that i think it's it's largest out there so we we're really pleased to kind of have a resource for activist policymakers and to, sorry to answer a question about campaigns yeah. as well not only the cwu but also um, of course the four day week campaign which we consult with we help we, we help out with they've been pushing this for a long time as well This report was co-written with some of their members mm-hmm. so if you look in the in the kind of on author's page you'll see who, who's you know who's in there and then also recently started the Labour four-day week campaign which is basically a membership member campaign based on the Labour Party in the UK who want to push this issue of shorter working weeks the four-day week onto the Labour Party conference floor in September.
0: So we're sitting here next to your uh, your tabloid uh, celebrity, the Daily Star, work a nine hour week to save the planet. So this is another report that you put out on mm. uh, the shorter week. And you have a little bit about climate change in the original report, but this is much more focused on how working less can save us from climate catastrophe. Yes. So tell us about that one so... and how the, the star decided that it was a great <laughs> idea. I'm here for
5: it. So, so, so um, yeah, so this is a paper which, which which we developed with a researcher called Philip Frey. He's one of our research affiliates. And he is interested in carbon productivity and working time. And he, he, it's quite a simple calculation, but effectively you can look at data made available by the OECD and the United Nations and look at how much carbon, how much CO2 is pumped into the atmosphere per industry, per country, basically. And so he thought he'd look at Germany, Sweden and the OECD average and the UK. And, you can do a calculation where you say, okay, you can see how much CO2 is pumped out just through production. So just through yep. our industries working. So this is not really to do with consumption. It's not really to do with commuting, which mm-hmm. is another important one. Right. But it's to do with simply just by working how much in, in our industries, how much carbon has been put out. And you can kind of compare that to the carbon budget we have remaining to avoid climate catastrophe, basically. So yep. to re- to remain within a two degree warming of of the planet there's a certain budget of carbon we can we can only put into the atmosphere and so basically philip kind of matched the two up say well look if that's the budget and that's how much we're putting out if we wanted to stay within that budget by reducing the working week how how long would the working week be if you can if you can see how much co2 has been put out per hour which you can and basically, you know, the, the findings are quite shocking and, and the findings really, the main takeaway is that we're working in a very unsustainable economy. Now that's that's not news, but if you look at it in terms of working time, it's very, very um, drastic, very stark. So it, he, he kind of, it came out that the UK would have to work a nine hour week in order to remain within the carbon budget. The OECD average was even shorter. It was like a five-hour week. Sweden, because it's more carbon-efficient, has to work a 12-hour week. Sorry, guys. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: wait, 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 wait. So you're getting penalized for being more carbon-efficient. This is, this is no good. You've
5: got to change this. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. Uh, clearly, the work week should go down as we get more efficient, right? Isn't this the whole automation <laughs> thing?
5: <laughs> so, so really, the paper was a provocation. Yeah. The paper was saying, well, look, you know, this, 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 this puts in stark terms how we need to change the way we work and change the length of the working week as well, because there's already quite good research out there before we did this to, to show that and again i'm talking about juliette shaw she gets two name checks in this podcast She is the best her and her team looked at 29 OECD countries and showed that on average if you reduce the working week by 25 percent you'll you'll on average reduce car- the carbon footprint including emissions and other bits and bobs by 30 percent. and that's that one really was based on consumption so that's really about commuting and, and carbon intensive goods so there's a lot of good research out there. Ours was adding to the debate, debate by saying not just about what we consume, but actually the way we're working is really, really um, carbon inefficient and really, really bad for, for, for the environment so, and for us. So that, anyway, that provocation was put out there. It was, you know, it was covered first by The Guardian and, you know, um, a few other places. And suddenly, via the press release, it got picked up by the tabloids, really. So The Daily Star, while every other paper was running something on Theresa May quitting... The Daily Star ran our cover story, and in fact, I only found out about it a minute before I walked into a news agent and saw it lying on the front on the front desk there. So it was, it was an amazing um, cover. In fact, the coverage isn't even that um, negative. They even have a kind of cutout which you can your new, <laughs> new rotor for your boss uh, half day on Friday, only one hour. And yeah, so and, and so it got covered by the Sun, it covered by the Daily Mail, even, um, and all of these all these reports weren't actually that negative. So yeah. you know the the Sun. You know, as a newspaper, it you know, I wouldn't expect to be to kind of receptive to some of these ideas, but actually was provided quite a coherent description of what of the benefits of a shorter working week. They even included stuff which wasn't in the press release about well-being, etc. And so I think what's interesting there is that no matter, even if you have a political bent as a newspaper which goes against kind of workers' rights and worker worker power, etc., work is still still recognised as something which cuts through to people. It will be reported on, and the idea of expanded free time has an almost apolitical um tap into people's desire for more time for themselves. So I think that's really interesting.
1: And that was Will Strong talking to Sarah about the politics of working time.
0: You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org.
1: And now it's time for ARG. I wish I'd written that. My pick for ARG is Trump's trade war with China and quote, our, unquote, intellectual property. It's by Dean Baker at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. So, Trump has been gunning for a trade war with China since he entered office, and now he's got one. In the past few weeks, he's doubled down. The threats have now turned into a full-blown attack with volleys of tariffs and even some corporate hostage shaking in Canada. Hello, Vancouver. Trump says he's doing it to stand up for the country, which he sees as a victim of Beijing's relentless bullying. CEOs, meanwhile, are wringing their hands in fear, warning of economic catastrophe as the prices of imports shoot up. But isn't it good that our president is sticking up for Americans who are getting their clock cleaned by a foreign power? After all, China's stealing, quote, our jobs and poaching our intellectual property. Burr has a different take. Baker, unlike most of the pundits wagging their heads about the China threat, is an economist and he doesn't have a nationalist dog in this fight. Instead, he looks at what the trade war means for working people. And it turns out that the old adage that no one wins in a trade war applies even more to ordinary workers than it does to multinational corporations. Baker points out that one of the long-standing charges that China is a currency manipulator is largely moot at this point. Now, though, Trump has shifted towards relentlessly accusing Beijing of violating intellectual property rules by exploiting its deep multinational networks to steal U.S. trade secrets and build up its own domestic brands. Like many corporations before them, yes, Chinese companies often steal, to mimic, to perfect, and ultimately to displace their American competitors in the global marketplace. China's efforts to strategically capture global markets are undeniable, but isn't global capitalism just fair game? And besides, why should we feel sorry for these corporations? What's at stake for the working poor on both sides of this trade war? Does it make sense for Trump to try to hamper technology transfer to China? Baker writes, If companies like Boeing and General Electric don't have to worry about being forced to transfer technology to Chinese companies when they outsource to China, they'll have more incentive to outsource to China. That's about as straightforward as it gets. Instead of reducing our trade deficit in manufacturing goods, this change is likely to increase it. Unquote. So when push comes to shove, U.S. manufacturers will likely just push their supply chains further to China instead of shoving its assembly lines back onto U.S. shores, where the cost of labor is higher, regulations more stringent, and taxes and overhead costs vastly more expensive. Of course, it is good to try to maintain a manufacturing sector in the U.S., but Trump's strategy is a bit off. Currently, he is hoping to keep multinationals on his side by China bashing in hopes of just undermining Beijing's influence overall. But that ship has sailed. Corporations do have everything to gain by hoarding their trade secrets, but workers have everything to lose when economic nationalism ruptures fragile supply chains. In Baker's view, the economic calculus behind intellectual property battles reveals which side Trump's bread is buttered on. He's taking orders from large tech and manufacturing firms that want to preserve their control over global markets and protect their brands. We're used to thinking of protectionist policies as favoring workers on the domestic front. But this is corporate protectionism. Companies like GE and Boeing don't truly want free trade, they just want to control trade in a way that maximizes their profits, whether that means offshoring when it makes sense, or hoarding intellectual property. Property when they want to hold on to patents and monopoly power. Now China is getting in on the same game, and the US is chafing against a rival to its capitalist hegemony. Baker actually argues for more, not less, cooperation with China in some sectors because intellectual property a fancy word for good ideas that people want to steal, is one area where a free exchange on the global marketplace can actually benefit workers in both countries. He writes, quote, It is also important to recognize that we will have far more to gain from having access to Chinese technology than the other way around. China is already far and away the global leader in clean technologies, with as much installed solar and wind energy as the rest of the world combined, and an electric car industry that now produces as many cars as all other countries put together. Unfortunately, trade policy is not crafted in the national interest, but with the goal of making the rich richer. This is what Donald Trump's trade war is all about. And as is the case with so many other wars, it is about working class people being forced to sacrifice by paying high tariffs to advance the goals of the rich. When it comes to existential crises like climate change, we can't afford to cling to petty nationalism and proprietary selfishness. Can we have free trade that promotes freedom for workers? Trade policy shouldn't be a gatekeeper for corporate giants. It should be a platform for building an industrial strategy and an industrial base that works with the rest of the world, not against it. Global trade in itself isn't inherently harmful to workers, but unfettered capitalism is. And whether that capital comes from inside U.S. borders or outside, ethically, it's definitely on the opposite side of the working class.
0: Robots. We touched on the subject in today's conversation, but the robots are coming for your job story is a perennial one and a perennially annoying one. So this week for ARG, I want to point your attention to a piece by Brian Merchant at Gizmodo called Robots Are Not Coming For Your Job, Management Is. It's pretty straightforward, right? The robots-are-coming-for-your-jobs genre is usually written in a way that posits automation as inevitable and shaped not by power, but by the, quote, natural development of technology. Except technology is, of course, kind of by definition, anything but natural. It is shaped and created by human decision-making and by power. You know, that old thing we talk about on this podcast all the time. Class struggle. Merchant writes, quote, At first glance, this might seem like a nitpicky semantic complaint, but I assure you it's not. This phrasing helps, and has historically helped, mask the agency behind the decision to automate jobs. And this decision is not made by robots, but management. It is a decision most often made with the intention of saving a company or institution money by reducing human labor costs, though it is also made in the interest of bolstering efficiency and improving operations and safety. It is a human decision that ultimately eliminates the job, end quote. As we talk about automation and robots and all these fun sci-fi topics we've all been primed by watching The Matrix or Transformers or whatever to expect these sentient robots who are just going to make decisions for us whether we like it or not. It's incredibly easy to assume that technology has an inherent tendency to move in a particular direction, but that's just not the case. As Merchant notes, plenty of instances of automation that have been tried have made life, in fact, more annoying, not easier. And why might that be? Could it be who's designed the robots and for what? He writes, quote, Letting an ambiguous conception of robots instead shoulder the blame lets the managerial class evade scrutiny for how it deploys automation, shuts down meaningful discussion about the actual contours of the phenomenon, and prevents us from challenging the march of this manifest robo destiny when it should be challenged. So let's get it straight. Robots are not threatening your job. Business to business salesmen promising automation solutions to executives are threatening your job. Robots are not killing jobs. The managers who see a cost benefit to replacing a human role with an algorithmic one and choose to make the switch are killing jobs. Robots are not coming for your job. The CEOs who see an opportunity to reap greater profits in machines that will make back their investment in 3.7 years and send the savings upstream, they're the ones coming for your job, end quote. And I must reiterate this point here, too, as we discussed earlier. Technology could be great. We could automate away a lot of shitty work and better distribute the work we can't automate, or the work that people might actually find kind of fulfilling. All of us could work a whole lot less, and we could have fully automated luxury communism, or partially automated luxury communism, or whatever. But it matters who controls and plans and programs the robots. And so long as the capitalists are in charge of the robots, they will be designed with one purpose in mind maximizing profits by minimizing labor costs, which has always been the goal of capital and it isn't the robot's fault. That is all we have time for today. Thanks as always to Dissent for hosting us and to Natasha Lewis for editing us and making us sound good. Thanks to all of you for listening, for tweeting about the podcast and sharing it with your friends, writing us reviews on iTunes or wherever you listen. And most especially, thank you very much to all of our monthly sustaining donors who keep us going with your dollars. You can become a sustaining member at dissentmagazine.org belabored-membership. Just $5 a month gets you an excellent belabored tote bag, and we also have some fabulous new Descent t-shirts if you sign up to be a Solidarity subscriber to the magazine. You can find out more about that program and those t-shirts at descentmagazine.org slash solidarity. You can also always write to us if you are an organizing teacher or graduate worker or otherwise employed in the overworked and undervalued education field. If you would like to work a shorter week or already do, if you're a Walmart worker or an athlete organizing, or if you just have something to share, belabored at dissentmagazine.org or tweet at us at hashtag belabored. Thanks, solidarity, and we'll be back in two weeks. Back, hair, You've go. been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.